I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to another episode of Your Own Personal Beatles. I am Jack Pelling. And I'm Robin Allender. Um, we've got a fantastic episode coming up with Guy Chambers. But firstly, how are you, Robin? How's your week been? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing good. Um, I've been teaching Wuthering Heights at the moment, so I've kind of been cramming that oh, nice. uh, in between reading about the Beatles, which has made a kind of quite confusing headspace. <laughs> yeah, odd uh, dreams. Yeah, Wuthering <laughs> Heights is really good, by the way. But anyway, aside from that reading, um, I've also started reading the Craig Brown book about the Beatles called One, Two, Three, Four, which is an enormous tome, but it's very, very good. Yeah, I can't wait. I've got it, but it's um, it's heft has been putting me heft. off. <laughs> yeah, it's heft. But yeah, I've got lo- there's a lovely bit here which I think complements the um, Ian McDonald quote we said in the first episode about the difference okay, between cool. John and Paul. The peculiar power of the Beatles' music, its magic and its beauty, lies in the intermingling of these opposites. So this is the opposite between John and Paul. Other yes. groups were raucous or reflective, progressive or traditional, solemn or upbeat, folksy or sexy sexy or aggressive (laughs) but when you hear a Beatles album you feel that all human life is there as John saw it when they were composing together Paul provided a lightness and optimism while I would always go for sadness the discords a certain bluesy edge it was this finely balanced push me pull you tension that made their greatest music so expressive capable of being both universal and particular at one and the same time many of their songs have bright melodies but dark lyrics or dark melodies but bright lyrics the words of help, run for your life, misery, and Maxwell's silver hammer are all about... I can't believe he's defending Maxwell's silver hammer. <laughs> are all about depression and psychosis, but they are set to jaunty tunes. Deprived of this tug of war between the two competing partners, their solo songs often lack that dimension of otherness, with John falling back on self-pity and Paul giving in to whimsy. Amazing. It's amazing how just people continue to write so beautifully about the relationship. Yeah, exactly, and how rich it is. And I think he's so good at talking about the idea of bright melodies and dark melodies, because I think that is one thing about the Beatles that I love, is just how expressive the melodies are. It made me think Mm. of Fixing a Hole, which is one of my favourite Beatles songs, and the way the melody is, you know, I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in, stop my mind from wandering. And the melody kind of wanders off in this peculiar way. And that's, it's just, you know, it's, uh, that's, I mean, that's very Paul. So uh, we've had some lovely correspondence in as well this week and we're very touched and thrilled with all the lovely reviews that people leave on the uh, Apple Podcasts page. Um, you can get in touch with us via email if you email me at jack at homespunsounds.com or you can go to personalbeatles.com forward slash contact and you can find us on all of our usual social media things at Personal Beatles where we're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all of that. Uh, but I got one one particular lovely email that I was going to read out. Um, this is from Katie Tucker. As she says, last year, my GP lent me a device to monitor my high blood pressure. First go, it was typically far too high. I tried to go to a happy place to see if that would beneficially affect things. 
Some when and somewhere I had no worries. I immediately recalled my six-year-old self at home hearing Fool on the Hill and possibly my first recognition of what and who the Beatles were. I was learning to play an old Baker-like recorder at the time and my ears pricked up to the familiar tones, recorder, flutes, mellotron, all three. In the tune itself, I fell in love. I re-ran through the song and the memory of that in my head, a sort of guided meditation, if you like. Lo and behold, the very next reading on the blood pressure monitor had drastically decreased to within normal range. Well, there you go. The healing medicinal power of the Beatles. I've since uh, Googled effects of music on heart rate, and of course there are many research papers exploring this, even one using Beatles songs, which is really interesting. I had a flick through it. It's a bit too technical for my layman knowledge, but um, we'll post the link to that because it is really interesting. Uh, So on with the show for this week. Today on the show we've got another unbelievable guest, uh, Mr Guy Chambers, who is one of the UK's finest and most successful songwriters. He's had a string of UK number one hits, including a Christmas number one, and has written and worked with pretty much everyone in uh, UK pop music royalty, but is probably best known for his work with Robbie Williams, writing tracks like Angels and Millennium and Let Me Entertain You in one of the most successful songwriting partnerships of recent times. And he's also a massive Beatles fan, so there was loads to talk about with him. Uh, he also went to school where John Lennon went to school, so there's some great chat about his relationship with John Lennon's old art teacher at Quarry Bank. And then, you know, the influence of the Beatles on his career, a little bit of working with Paul um, what were your highlights of that one? Yeah, I think it was a very good chat. It was very interesting. We talked a lot about the music industry now and the problems the music industry industry is having and kind of what hope we have for the future. Uh, and we talked a lot about the kind of production side of things, you know, very speed and all that. And mm-hmm. but I think what came through is just his passion. Like he could have talked for hours, I think, about the Beatles. So it was yeah. just great to have a little slice of that, but also from someone who's worked with Paul McCartney and has recorded in Abbey Road and etc so it was a great chat uh, he also yeah. his least favorite Beatles song is uh, my favorite Beatles song so that was kind of interesting yeah that's amazing so yeah listen in see uh, which one that's going to be you won't guess it <laughs> um, so now um, please enjoy our fascinating conversation with Guy Chambers So Robin and I are delighted to have with us this week musician, producer, writer, one of the most successful songwriters uh, uh, living in the UK at the moment, Guy Chambers. Thank you so much for joining us, Guy. It's a pleasure, Jack. Nice to be here. So we're going to ramble on about uh, about the Beatles for an hour or so. Um, and you have an, an, a sort of easier segue than most because you went to Quarry Bank. I did. Um, which is where John and Wellen went to school. So I assume that that was quite, um, you know, were you a Beatles band before that age? What was your first was. sort of memory of the Beatles? Uh, my first memory of the Beatles was watching Hey Jude live on TV. So I think I would have been five. Yeah, I was five. Oh, wow. 1968, they did a live performance of Hey Jude. And um, I remember... Look, Paul McCartney looks particularly um, beautiful in that clip. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, he's... Is this the performance where they played Revolution as well uh, in that clip? I, I'm not sure if I just it was the I think it was the David Frost show. Oh yeah, yeah. they've got lots of hippies in the background all dancing and clapping. Oh yeah, and know, there's yeah, a big orchestra yeah. behind them doing the na na nas. Uh, I just remember thinking, "Wow, what is this?" and uh, and then my, and then of course my mum had the 
the red compilation album and the blue compilation albums. So I used to play them to death, you know. Mm. Uh, and then she also had Revolver, which is my favourite Beatle album, if I had to pick one. Um, and then many years later, when I moved to Liverpool when I was 13, yeah, obviously by then I was a mega Beatle fan, a huge. And I lived very near John's house and Paul's house. I was sort of equidistant between both of them. And I was right by Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane and all these iconic places. And then when I was 16, I moved from one school to Quarry Bank for sixth form. And then I had the good fortune to have the same art teacher as John Lennon, a, a, oh. a guy called Mr. Plent. And Mr. Plent and I got on really well. And uh, I was rubbish at art, but but we we I I used to sort of uh, hang out with his daughter, so we became really good friends. And uh, Mr. Plent, after a while, said, "Do you want to come and into the stock room? I've got something that might interest you." And I said, "Sure." And went into his back room, and there was John Lennon's desk. Oh wow! Amazing. With all the graffiti <laughs> on it and uh, strange drawings and. He had Little Richard written written in it and Elvis Forever and things like that. It was pretty pretty cool. That's amazing. Wow. And did you get some good stories about what he was like at school from Mr. Plent? Uh, he just sort of said that he was a dreamer. He's always looking out the window. Um, but it, and he could be incredibly cutting and funny. Mm. But, but but he, I think I think he thought he was really talented as a, as an artist. Yeah. That is. Yeah. yeah, some of his art is really great, especially the earlier stuff. There's some that stuff that sort of leaks out from his time at art school, and it's really impressive. Yeah, I haven't seen. There's a that. pub. There's a pub in Bristol which is um, called the Cotton Porter Stores, which has a mural on the wall, which is apocryphally was drawn by the Beatles after they'd played at the Colston Hall, <laughs> but they've left it up there. Wow, uh, actually, might be complete rubbish, but it's you can <laughs> see the. There is definitely Lennon did have that a, a very nice style, a kind of yeah. naive style kind of thing. Yeah, I I've never heard that before. That's a new bit of Beatle uh, <laughs> yeah. paraphernalia. So was there a sort of um, deification of him at the school? Because I, I I remember reading that he got quite um, annoyed when the school would kind of use him as uh, a, a sort of PR thing because he had a pretty tough time there. Apart from in his art classes, no, there was not. And um, I, I also had the same headmaster, Mr. Popjoy. And um, when I tried to get any info out of Mr. Popjoy about John, he, he wasn't having it. He didn't want to talk about him. <laughs> so I, I didn't get the sense that they were... I mean, the school is very sadly no longer called Quarry Bank. I don't know if you know oh, that. Oh, really? No, I didn't know that. The mm. Liverpool Council, in their infinite wisdom, changed the name of the school. And it's mm. now called something else. I think it's called Calderstones. Mm comprehensive or something i don't know what it's called uh which is just pathetic because it's like a it's one of the most famous schools in the world you know i mean i suppose you got the airport but well (laughs) (laughs) yeah but john lennon had nothing to do with that yeah that's true (laughs) um so were you already um a musician by the time that you started there uh yeah I, i was i was uh playing in various bands um playing um i was in a sort of indie band uh playing like we played dingwalls for example in london and we Mm. we played um we did a tour when i was a little bit older um and then i was also in a show band like a 
So a show band is where we play working men's clubs and, and play covers. And so, uh, and I would play Beatles songs then, you know, like Day Tripper. And so I, I, I kind of, but I've been learning Beatles songs since I was a child. I used to sit in front of the speakers with my guitar and play along and learn the bass. I used to spend hours learning the bass lines. So this was always from the guitar? Yeah, well, I'm and the piano. I'd play along on the piano and learn Lady Madonna and that mm. kind of thing. But I've always been very fascinated by the bass lines. I think Paul is such a... I know this has been said before, but mm. his bass lines are so key to the way the songs work. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you actually hum the bass lines. They're part of the kind of melodic... of a, You know, in a song like something or something something or something uh, you know the bass line is such an integral part of that kind of the, the melodic world of that song well I that suppose, song's you know. very it's pretty slow and the, mm. and it, it, it's always difficult to produce a song that slow and uh mm. the, the bass actually fills all the holes the gaps and yeah. uh keeps it moving and um the with a lesser bass player that song could sound really ploddy yeah, and uh, but he's he's. I'd have to say if I had to pick one bass player in the world, he's he is my favorite bass player for sure. He's unbelievable. Yeah, it's uh, when you've got so many strings to your bow, it's the uh, one that's easily overlooked. But there's a lot of those songs yeah. that you know wouldn't be the same without it. Your dad, am I right in thinking, was a flautist in the Liverpool Philharmonic? Yeah, that well, he was originally in the London Philharmonic, and then. When I was 13, he moved, he moved from that orchestra to the Liverpool Philharmonic. And that's why I had, that's why I had five years in Liverpool right, from 13 okay. till I was 18. And was, uh, was he a Beatles fan? He was. He, 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 yeah, he, 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 I think he could, he liked things like the French horn solo in For No One. Right. Okay. And, he, yeah. and he knew that music. He knew a lot of the musicians who played on Beatles songs, you know, they were his friends. Yeah. So um, I had that nice connection there. And sometimes I would, over the years, I've bumped into some of the musicians who played on Beatles records. Um, Derek Watkins comes to mind, who was a, an amazing trumpet player who played on Let Me Entertain You. And oh, right. okay. I, I think he's the... Well, he definitely played on a few songs. I think he might... He didn't do the trumpet solo on Penny Lane, or, but mm. he did. he did do... A few things. Um, isn't the... Um, I remember reading the trumpet solo, or is it a cornet? It's, it's actually... Penny Lane's actually a bit sped up, isn't it? So uh, it's actually... I thought it was a piccolo trumpet. Yeah, uh, okay. it is. But, yeah. but I could be wrong. <laughs> I, I'm out of Beatles club. I don't think it's a cornet. I don't think it's a cornet. I, I, no. I don't think there's any cornet solo on a Beatles record, but okay. I could be wrong. But, um, yeah, so a lot of those songs... Were, I, I, think, I, I think I remember reading about the, the guy who played that on Penny Lane's always said he could carry it he could play along to the record but it's been sped up in such a way that it makes it well, kind of very, hard to play along to yeah it. very speed was a huge thing for the beatles you know they would mm. they would speed up a lot of things and they would sometimes slow things down like rain for example mm. is heavily slowed down strawberry fields is another one isn't it yeah mm. heavily heavily together. sped up if you listen to the demo of that on anthology it's uh Pretty incredible how much yeah. slower it is, but that's that's drugs for you. I mean, by yeah. the, <laughs> you know, by the time they were making pepper, they yeah. were pretty stoned, or or yeah. on acid. So uh, it's hard to get tempo right. Rubber Soul is definitely the kind of marijuana record, and then things get slightly 
heavier as they're going onwards in 66 and 67. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny drugs, isn't it? Because people <laughs> seem so anti them in some ways, but they were very helpful to the Beatles. Yeah. Mm. Well, helpful in that period and then not so helpful later on, I think. Uh, well, you're talking about let it be period. Well, yeah, I think heroin isn't quite as sort of creatively no. friendly. <laughs> well, you say that, but mm. John's first solo album is my favourite. The Plastic, the Plastic Ono, Ono Band. Band. Oh, and he, right, you know, he was recovering from heroin. Yeah. Um, heroin had a part in that record. But I'd never want to say that was a good thing, a good option for someone to go yeah. Hi, it's uh, Robin here. Just want to reiterate that heroin is bad. Um, so is something like Vary Speed, is that something that you've uh, ever toyed with in the studio? Oh, yeah, no. I've, I've A lot of, quite a few Robbie records are Very Sped. Um, right. I don't think we ever went slower, but we definitely would often tweak the songs when they went to mastering. Right, okay. Which is mastering is when you finish, the when the record's mixed, you then go to an expert who makes all the songs on a record work with one another because sometimes mm. record songs are different volume and and yeah. some songs are based, too bassy, some songs are too bright and a good mastering engineer will balance that all out. And And sometimes when we're in mastering, we'd hear songs against one another and you think oh that song feels a bit slow now and so when you were very speeding then was that all analog stuff you were doing or were you kind of digitally tinkering to speed things up my early days it would have been analog with tape and mm. then it started going digital in the early 2000s mm. sadly I'm a, <laughs> I'm a big analog fan <laughs> But, um, yeah. Speaking of which, I've seen um, that you've got a pretty impressive desk in your in your studio in West London. I do. Is that an Abbey Road desk? That it's an EMI desk, isn't it? But was it ever used it to record any Beatles stuff? Well, I'll be honest with you. I, I'm I'm not sure. <laughs> it was in Studio Three for a while uh, in the early seventies. So I think Solo Beatles might have used it, but not as a band. Okay. Um, but that's, you know, it's still, it's a very beautiful, and if anybody listening to that, listening to this wants to see it, they, if they go to, um, maloco.com and put in sleeper studios, you'll be able to look at it. There's pictures of it in there and uh, it's a very beautiful thing because mm. you didn't know it was made out of bomber parts from oh, really? wow. German bomber parts. <laughs> it was a German company that called red R E double D. And uh, they reuse German bomber parts to make those desks. And that's why they've got the sliding faders, mm. just like in an aircraft. Ah, oh, right, because wow. it does look like, yeah, a cockpit to a certain yeah. extent. Yeah, and that's, that's the only the reason they had that volume thing with the sliding faders. There was no other reason. What is it about the quality of that um, piece of equipment that gives you It's the very edge? neutral. Very neutral. So... What you get, and but then the having said that, it is neutral. But then the the EQ is very unique. You know, the top, the treble, the bass, and the compressors are particularly fierce. You know, they're sort of prehistoric, but they're sometimes they're just what you. You know, that piano sound, that the Beatle piano sound, um, mm. is very distinctive, and it's yeah. a combination of. I mean, I've spent years trying to get that sound in my studio. <laughs> I've, I've got it now. But it took me a long time. Yeah. But it's a 
it's the right microphone, it's the right, putting the mic through the right mic pre, and then also the compressor is absolutely key. And yeah. the compressor they used in the desk is, is, is very, very distinctive and very fierce. And it's, uh, <laughs> but if you put it on, if you have the right combination, it's instant Beatles, which, which I yeah. like. You mentioned elsewhere about how much you liked um, Freddie Mercury's piano playing as well. Oh, I love Freddie of... Mercury's piano playing. Well, I was lucky enough to um, hear when, when we, I, I did a version of We Are The Champions with Rob and uh, I had to learn the piano part. And uh, I, I was given the piano part on its own on its own track, so I could hear it just on its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the piano part is absolutely incredible. There's just so much attack in the way he plays. Yeah, it was it? Very, he was very um, rhythmic. Mm-hmm. But he had to be, because you understand uh, the band is only a three-piece band. Most, well, yeah, what, you know, it's just bass, drums, guitar, and piano. Mm. It's very, very simple. Mm. You have to do a lot to make that sound that they created, at, just as the Beatles had to, to as well. You know, they, they, they didn't really have additional instrumentalists until Billy Preston came along right at the end. Yeah, but I mean, there was there would there been a lot of double tracking of piano, like oh yeah, you know, lots of yeah. Well, that's one of their tricks, isn't it? They would uh, yeah. they would have a piano and then they would double it with their jangle piano as they the, the tack piano that they had oh, but okay. the sound of penny lane is three different pianos yeah it's got that slight chorusy playing sound the same thing yeah we yeah. would be chorusy because they wouldn't all be exactly in tune yeah and it's a particularly great sound the piano sound on penny lane mm. Mm. have you been to abbey road and messed around on all of those pianos that are still there i have quite a oh. few times over the years <laughs> um they've got Sadly, they lost a lot. I mean, Paul's got quite a lot of the stuff. I've been to Paul's studio as well in Sussex, and I saw a lot of the original Beatles stuff. Um, he's got the original lights that they had, the neon lights that that were brought in to make it more psychedelic in 1967, mm. I think. They, asked, they, they got fed up of the very sort of municipal-like lighting that they had in there. yeah. Um, but they have still got the, the so-called Mrs. Mills piano, which was the honky-tonk piano. They've still got that at Abbey Road. They've still got the original Steinway that they played, and they've got the original organ, well, one of the original organs. Um, but they've, they've got the Celeste that they used. Uh, they've got a few things, but they lost a lot as well, sadly. But, mm. you know, they, the, trouble with, the trouble with Abbey Road, there's no storage Right. There's hardly any storage space. So they that's why my desk went. They didn't have any room to store it, so they let one of the engineers take it, I think for free. He put it in his garage <laughs> for years. And then yeah. he heard about me wanting one and hit me up and said, Well, it's X amount and it was a shocking amount of money at the time. Wow. But because I'm such a Beetlehead, I got it and it was actually a good investment long term. Yeah, oh, amazing. I love that. The history of the Beatles is the history of storage solutions. <laughs> <laughs> well, one yeah, part of it, yeah. You've been 
been lucky enough to go down to Paul's studio and stuff. Do you, have you ever worked with him or did you jam with yeah. him when you're down there? No, I did um, a charity record called He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother for Hillsborough. Oh, yeah. Um, I produced that a few years ago and Paul sang on that and also he played the guitar solo and I had the rather extraordinary experience of singing him a melody because mm-hmm. he, he initially played a guitar solo and I said, that's great, Paul, but I've got this other idea. Do you mind if I sing you the melody and you play my melody? And he went, sure. And oh, That's a hell of a moment. He, he, le- <laughs> he learned the part and he played it and it was, yeah, I thought, wow, I'm singing, a, you know, I'm I'm actually producing Paul McCartney. It was uh, no, it was a lot. I had a lovely day in his studio, and uh, he showed me his uh, the original Bolek. Uh, I think it's I forget the name of the tape recorder, uh, which he did the Seagulls. Recorded the Seagulls on for Tomorrow Never Tomorrow Knows. Never knows yeah. he's, oh, he's got yeah. that Isn't original. That supposed to be his laughing played backwards or something, or is it actually a seagull? He said it was Seagulls. Oh well, there you mm. go. It's a very um evocative sound the seagulls isn't it? i mean do you do you know the band boards of canada the yeah electronic yeah there's a great song of theirs they did um for appeal session which has got a seagull sample okay and it's there's something so uh i mean possibly because it's the beatles but there's something so kind of weirdly psychedelic and evocative about that sound <laughs> yeah <laughs> kind of it's got that sort of peculiar mix of sort of nostalgia for something you don't remember yourself, which is what Boards of Canada do very, very well. Yeah. But it's possibly, I mean, Boards of Canada are big Beatles fans as well, so it's yeah. possibly a nod nod to them. It's slightly um, crazy, the sound, isn't it? It sounds a bit like somebody losing their mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. And I think the Beatles were attracted to that, you know, that they weren't scared of insanity, you know, and you can hear that in tracks like, Tomorrow Never Knows and Revolution Number Nine, of course, which is, mm. you know, there aren't many bands that have done an, an avant-garde art piece as one, you know, but actually dared to put it out. Well, there's a great line in Revolution in the Head um, where Ian MacDonald says that Revolution Number Nine is the sort of the most widely distributed piece of avant-garde music in the world, which is, you know, for lots of people True. don't like that song for various reasons, but that's a great kind of fact isn't it yeah it would be um well it's it shows you that music it can literally be anything as did john cage of course and and Mm -hmm. john cage's four minutes 33 which is for piano and it's just silence um i think the beatles were influenced i know of course paul was was very much into that whole avant-garde world and um yeah but it was a statement of intent, wasn't it? it? Was sort of, I think it was sort of saying they weren't scared of anything, which, yeah, which I think was incredible. I mean, I, I found it quite scary as a child. Remember, yeah, mm. we, me and my brother used to quote bits from mm. it. And, you know, it's very creepy. It is and, creepy, but it kind of <laughs> take this brother. May it serve you well. That's right. Yeah, and but it, it sort of reflects. I always think about the Paris riots and the riots mm. that were going on in. America, the race riots, and I think it reflects, you know, Vietnam. Of course, I think it. Yeah. I think it reflects the way the world was going darker in '68 after the sort of yeah. the ecstasy of Summer of Love, and then it started. The dream started sort of 
turning into a nightmare as the 60s, just as, just as it is now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So one question that we ask everyone uh, on the podcast is, do you have a controversial Beatles opinion? Uh, <laughs> I don't think any of the singles are overrated. There's that song, Long, Long, Long. Is it called that? Long, 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 mm-hmm. the yeah. Song White album. That, that's a very poor song. Really? That's my, that is Robin's genuinely favorite my favourite Beatles, Beatles song. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, I've never met someone. Okay, well, good for you. Well, yeah. There you go. Uh because I, I just think it's so beautiful. The atmosphere of it is so kind of, I don't know. It's unlike any other Beatles song, definitely. It is. It's um, it's such a quiet song, and it's got such dynamic range. I think I said on one podcast we did, it's almost like a talk, talk, Mark later period kind of Mark Hollis thing, where it's this incredible dynamic range. Um, but but by poured, what do you mean poured? It's interesting, like melodically, just not, mem- not memorable. Not memorable yeah. in the mel- I just find it a, a bit of a dirge. Right, yeah. Um, but that's one of the very few Beatles songs that I don't like. They're not many. There's a, there's another one on White Album. Um, oh, I don't really like. Um, Why don't we do it in the road? Okay. I find that a bit. It, the the catalogue is so extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, it's, it seems churlish to pick, tick, be critical of it, to be honest. My controversial uh, Beatles opinion, and I think George Martin had the same feeling, was that the White Album really should have been one record and um, the the dirge could have, could have been chucked. <laughs> but I suppose it's such, an, it's such a fascinating historical kind of artefact. But at the same yeah, time, when is. I stick on Abbey Road, I don't sit through Revolution Number no. 9 every single time. <laughs> No, with White Album, there's stuff like Wild Honey Pie, and you know, I think yeah. that's fairly and so, um, piggies and things like that. But I think you need the. I think we've mentioned this before, but I, I love the White Album because it's sort of like this big haunted house that you're kind of finding all these unexpected corners in, and so I think you need all those strange elements in it somehow. But uh. yeah, no, and it reflects the their their um, maturity. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they they. And it it reflects their experience in Ricky Kesh mm-hmm. very much, Definitely. and discovering meditation. Um, I've been I've been lucky enough also to be in jo- a, jo- a Paul's house in St John's Wood, and I went into the garden, and uh, I've I've been inside the meditation dome that he built. Oh, wow! 
<laughs> Did you know that they used to meditate together inside this dome? Okay, yeah. And, um, yeah, they used to go for breaks. From They'd walk from Abbey Road. This is a 10-minute walk from Abbey Road to Paul's house. And then they would sit in that dome, presumably get stoned and meditate. And uh, I think that I've, I've always been fascinated by that. Um, and Paul said he still meditates now. Mm. Um, and uh, that sort of group energy that they had, um, you can really feel that on the White Album. Is all the different, well, their their different personalities really become what because part with Pepper. Pepper was very much Paul's yeah. vision, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think with White Album, you, well, you can see them breaking up as well. You can feel the tension yeah. in the band, but it's also fascinating as well. And Yeah, definitely. I think the only song that was co-written was Birthday, wasn't it? Which was the Lennon-McCartney one. The, every other song is by an individual in that album. Yeah, so there's... yeah. and I don't even think Birthday was... Yeah. <laughs> it's not amazing. <laughs> It's got a nice I kind mean, of Led Zeppelin style break in it, though. I think. Oh yeah, good. no, I mean, no, no. I think it's a, it's a, it's a great. Well, they were trying to compete with Jimi Hendrix yeah. by yeah, that point. Yeah. It's interesting just to go back a bit because you were we were talking about the experimentalism, kind of Paul's interest in the avant-garde and things, and then also marrying that with pop. I mean, I mean, how how do you feel that kind of um, relationship has had an effect in your career? Because as as, as writing pop songs but also having an experimental kind of quality to the to, and quite experimental interest. I know it definitely has had an effect. Um, although I wouldn't like to say I'm a experimental producer or anything. I, I'm, I think I'm pretty mainstream in my taste, but then we've, Rob and I have done quite a lot of concept songs mm. um, like Millennium, mm-hmm. like um, Party Like a Russian um, and I think we're not scared of doing songs that are quite bold mm. statements. And we're also, I think another thing I learned from the Beatles was not to be scared of changing the style quite radically from different albums. And, you know, because they, they, they were very good at moving around stylistically. Mm. I really believe that's a good thing for an art. I mean, I obviously get that from David Bowie as well. Yeah. But um, uh, I'd like to think with Rob, if you look at his albums, the ones I've been involved with, they they're all quite different. Mm. You know, they, they 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 there is a progression going on there. Or well, I don't know if the word progression is right because I think the first album is probably my favourite. But um, mm. there's there's uh, definitely there have a lot of it's very. A lot of variety in his in in the work we've done together, yeah. which I'm proud of. I always liked Lazy Days on the first album. Lazy Days. Well, yeah. Lazy Days used to be a Lemon Trees song. Right. Yeah, right. I was in a band called the Lemon yeah. Trees, and um, yeah, that was actually had already been written and recorded and everything. And uh, but he said, "Oh, I really like. Can I sing that song?" And I said, "Yes." And then he he co-wrote. He sort of changed some of the lyrics and changed the structure of it as well. Mm. But yeah, thank you. I I, I like that song too. Because I remember when that album came out, Life Through a Lens, and there was this all, all this yeah. talk about Robbie Williams and kind of, I suppose, the credibility question and, mm-hmm. and you know, can someone from a boy band do make a sort of artistic 
be serious album, I suppose. And then you hear those songs, you know, that is actually good. You know, like there's that, you know, you're surprised. There's like this, this stuff is good. You know, it's good quality songwriting. Is Robbie a Beatles fan? Is he? Um... He is. He is. He's nowhere near my level of, um, you know, I'm like a disciple. Mm. Uh, he's, he's, he, he is a fan, but he's more into hip hop, mm-hmm. house music, um, indie music like the Stone Roses, Happy Mondays, that kind of thing. I, I guess obviously he's a lot younger than I am. He's only 46 now, but he's, he's, yeah, he, it's more my generation, I think, that have like complete uh, indoctrination by the band, yeah. if you like, whatever better yeah. word. And you've talked up, up elsewhere about how for certain songs it was almost like they were deliberate little nods to the Beatles, like one song, which was a tribute to Taxman. Uh, we did a song called Heaven From Here right. that's on the second album, okay. and that is very much inspired by Norwegian Wood. Oh, okay. Oh, it's right. similar in some ways. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I similar... It's not the same though. I mean, we we were careful, but the feel the feel of it, and I I tried to get a flute solo on it, just like Norwegian mm. would, yeah. and um, Rob didn't allow it, which actually it was my dad playing. <laughs> oh, really? But, um, nice. Which is a bit sad for me, but um, uh, but Rob, Rob thought it. I mean, he probably rightly he thought he thought it was too close to Norwegian Wood, so right. he mm. probably made the right call actually. Was it um, Ego A Go Go, one of yours that's uh, got a Beatles? Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, that, that is a bit tax man in some ways. Um, yeah, no, Ego's quite beatle but it's also very much influenced by Sammy Davis Jr. and mm. um, that sort of Vegas-y thing that I really love and Rob really loves, sort of yeah. late 60s Vegas, Tom Jones, Elvis, yeah. Sammy Davis Jr. We love that big kind of big band sound well, that, that kind of taxman bassline has got that jazzy feel yeah. it. you know if, if you make it a bit more swingy then it kind of goes into that sort of more jazzy kind of thing no there's definitely bass lines on our records that are very much influenced by paul big mm. time yeah as i said I, I i do like bass lines that are melodic that you can sing and um and and the, the song like strong for example that has a very very beatly bass line in it. If you yeah. just if you listen, focus on the bass for a minute. Um, yeah, they've been a bit of constant. They're constantly with you. Well, with me as a songwriter, I, I I'm they're, they're they're always a presence. In um, you just can't deny it. I've been teaching guitar since lockdown started and sort of doing some online tutoring and Norwegian Woods, a song we like to work on. And there's that thing when you work out a song and you're playing them the bridge and, you know, it goes into the D minor yeah. and uh, then it goes to the G and then it's that, that kind of A that brings you back to D and they always go, oh, wow, that's so nice, you know. And that's such a, isn't that such a lovely moment of working out Beatles songs and kind of hearing that magic, I think. That's something that really unlocks them for you. Well, I I always say to aspiring songwriters that if they, sh- whoever they're really into, whatever artist it is, they should 
learn their songs mm. and have learned to actually play them because that's the way you unlock the secrets it's actually playing the chords and singing along to the melodies and and that's what I did with the Beatles. I also did it with Queen a lot and and mm. Zeppelin, but mainly with the Beatles. And I, you know, I, I can sit down at the piano and pretty much play any song. I think, pretty much. What was your instrument of choice then when you were growing? What did you? You were at Guildhall, I know, but were you? Did you focus on one instrument? Uh, at Guildhall, I did piano and composition. But that'd be the first. The first instrument I, I when I was five, I had piano lessons. Oh right, uh, okay. and then. When I was about nine, I got into the guitar and uh, had lessons when I was in Liverpool and learned all those jazzy chords that I couldn't figure out on my own. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have a period where you sort of lost the Beatles and then came back to them when you were experimenting with other types of music or is it a constant? No, it's, it's definitely not constant. Um, I have periods when through saturation, I can't listen to them at all. Um, I've, I've just, I overdid it when I was younger mm. and I have to have quite long, like detoxes, yeah. if you like, from, yeah. from them. And then, and then I'll have them, but like, for example, I bought the, the remix of Pepper, which, yeah. which I think is absolutely incredible. Incredible. It's so yeah. much better than the original version. Well, that, that's the great thing about these remasters and remixes that you're kind of, Pepper is just so familiar to everyone, but then I was listening to that and it's like a, a new album or something. It you, was. You're hearing so much it more in it. And, you know, for instance, "Fixing a Hole" is like such a great song, which I hadn't really. Yeah. Well, because the drums are louder. Yeah. Uh. And they sound mm. so. They just sound so much better. The drums, mm. and that really pushes the song yeah. along. In, in a. No, I mean, like me and my son. Because my son's now become. He's seventeen, and we we sit down. We do quite an old-fashioned thing. We were sitting down in front of the speakers. I've got a really nice sound system here in Sussex, and we we sit down and listen to a whole record, you know, and, and really get into it. Um, and that, so, but at the moment I'm having a bit of a detox, but I'm waiting, like I'm sure every Beatle fan, for the Let It Be uh, our, uh, film. Yeah, mm, yeah. And, and yeah, when that comes, that. that's going to be a huge... I just hope we can go into a cinema to, you know, hope I can go to the premiere. That's <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. And I hope it's not too upsetting as well, because I find it quite hard to watch those late Beatle footage when they're obviously at each other's throats the whole time. Have you seen the original film or not? I have seen it sort of bits of it on YouTube in a sort of unofficial illicit way. <laughs> right, because they took it off screen in 1986, I think. Yeah. But I'm old enough to remember seeing it on TV. Yeah, they used to play it on TV quite regularly. There's quite a lot of clips from it on the in anthology, wasn't there? They had quite a few clips from it. No, it, it is a really heavy film. It's mm. actually quite hard to get through. But they apparently the new version is uh, not as heavy as the original. It has much more of them enjoying themselves and laughing and telling jokes, and it's much more fun yeah. apparently. But uh, you know, it's 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 still time travel, isn't it? It's yeah. wonderful to see the sixties come to life in colour like that and you know, they were such beautiful human beings. It's quite amazing just seeing them being creative and 
you still see the bonds between them. Obviously, mm. it's just that old thing of that person you love the most is the one you're going to hurt the most. Mm. And you can see that with George and Paul in their relationship and John and Paul and Ringo looking bored out of his mind. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> but it's also got the joy of the clothes and the fact that they built that crazy studio in at Apple mm. down, downstairs, which had a real fireplace. And, you know, these funny little things that, because obviously there is a lot of footage from Abbey Road, but there isn't much footage from them at that time as as much as other times. Mm. And and it's amazing how uncomfortable they look when they're filming in the Twickenham Film Studio. Yeah, yeah. Because they had to get there early, you know, famously, and they all they, they all. I think Paul was fine getting up early, but the other <laughs> the other the other three just weren't interested. Is this the famous George quote? Play what I'll play what you want me to play. I'll play what I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in any band, there has to, there's always someone who's in charge. Um, and what was very unusual with that band was that you had sort of two leaders in one band. You had John and Paul, both equally as strong. And that, at the beginning, was an incredible strength. But as it went on, and when Brian Epstein died, mm. John started losing interest in the Beatles, I think, on some levels. Mm. Paul had to take over as the driving force and that create obviously you really see it in that film the tension that creates he's always pushing them on to do stuff whereas you can sort of see them losing interest yeah that's amazing though isn't it to think that you you can definitely sense that as you say that john losing interest in the as the 60s progressed but you're still able to produce such incredible things in such a short space of time i mean just go back to the white album again Mm. you know the songs are so finished and he must have, they must have been written so quickly, you know, something like Sexy Sadie or... Yeah, plenty. You've got to remember that in Ricky Kesh, they were there for three months. Yeah. Mm. That's a long time. Yeah. And mm. there was no distractions back there. I mean, this is something people, younger people forget. You know, there was no internet. There was... N- people used the phone once a week. Yeah. <laughs> um, they didn't have any TV there. They, I, I think they, they might have had a... I think they had tape recorders. Right. Yeah, because there are some demos, aren't there? Yeah. 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 But they, which are beautiful, aren't they? They're mm. so beautiful, those demos. Mm. But um, there was no distractions. They had all day to write songs. Yeah. So they would, I think sometimes they'd write three in a day. Cry, baby, cry. Make your mother sigh. She's old enough to know better. So cry, baby, cry. The king was in the garden picking flowers for a friend who came to play. The queen was in the playroom painting pictures for the children's holiday. Cry, baby, cry. It is an issue that because the arts aren't valued, mm-hmm. um, if you're a young artist, your kind of default thing is that the work I'm producing has no value. And that kind of makes you it harder to progress and be good at it in a way. Not, I mean, not be good at it, but I mean, it, it's you're demoralised from the start, you know. <laughs> no, it's, you know, we, well, we had a problem before lockdown. Like one of the big problems for young artists is... and is 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 how much music there's already out there you mm. know with with spotify mm. 
I think I think I'm right in saying there's thirty thousand on average new songs a week. Wow. Right. <laughs> so it's very difficult to get your songs noticed. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And um that's kind of heartbreaking in itself. Um I think one of the things well I felt this with Rob that what there's nothing much more inspiring for a writer than knowing you have an audience and they are waiting mm. for your next um piece. Yeah. And obviously the Beatles famously had that from the word, you know, from the they had this incredible audience, millions and millions of people throughout the world were literally waiting, counting down the days for their next release. Yeah. And they they knew that. And obviously that was a lot of pressure, mm. especially around sort of 65, 66, when it was constantly, they're constantly being pestered by EMI for another yeah. single. But that is also incredibly good, I think, for artists to have deadlines, to have a ready-made audience. Mm. And obviously they were earning... You know, they were playing massive gigs and yeah. Yeah, earning that's... lots of money and buying flash, flashy cars and <laughs> glamorous girlfriends and all the Rob rest of it. Soul was, they had two weeks to do it because it was going to be, a, you know, they wanted it ready for the Christmas market. Well, there you go. 65. I mean, it's, it's insane. The pressure was just... Yeah. But they I don't think they they were so young and and they had this just unbelievable energy that... yeah. You can hear it in the records now. That's partly why they're dating really well, I think, is mm. that their energy is just extraordinary between the four of them. Yeah. yeah, I think it's for people of our generation, it's hard to know just how exciting it would be to hear a new <laughs> Beatles album come out, and it must be unbelievable. I mean, I was reading about the Sgt Pepper the day that that came out and the review in the times that um after about two plays said it was the most important cultural artifact of the 20th century <laughs> well it is it is yeah i yeah. mean fair play to them i think they yeah. also went round to mama cass's house in the king's road and played it out the window on her speakers like three weeks before it came out wow. which again i don't think i think you might be in a little bit of trouble with your label if you did that these days <laughs> well the, well yes only if you're a big artist yeah you know mm. as i say for a lot of young artists no one i think a lot of musicians artists performers whatever we're all feeling very like we are members of staff that aren't wanted anymore mm. and we've all we've got left is a begging bowl <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah asking for tips on spotify is particularly demeaning I think. well that's what it's come down to yeah. it's it's i mean i i try to stay positive but one thing that's helped me uh, in in terms of this is I st I've recently started working for Pirate Studios, um, the rehearsal rooms, um, uh -huh. and they've just reopened after lockdown two weeks ago. And I'm just working at the one in Greenwich. And the absolutely, inc I mean, it's very much a London thing, but the incredible range of music that young people are making is quite yeah. inspiring because mm -hmm. you hear grime, R&B, hip-hop, indie, gospel, jazz uh, yeah. You know, just incredible. You hear this amazing jazz drummer practicing in a room and he comes out and he looks like he's about 12, you know, <laughs> and so kids are still very energized by music and making music oh, yeah. as, as to no. whether they'll make livings and buy mm. fancy cars from the proceeds. I'm not sure. You know? Well, 
my son is 17 and he's he's a really talented musician he's a brilliant drummer he's a brilliant piano player but he's like he wants to be a lawyer he's right. just, <laughs> he, he doesn't think there's any way he's gonna earn a living yeah mm. it's, a, it's a shit business <laughs> well it's full of horrible people unfortunately mm. it's one of the well you know as, as the Beatles found with Alan Klein yeah, yeah. beginning yeah. of the end just wanted to ask you about um because obviously um the Beatles massive influence on you as a songwriter but how much influence did George Martin have on you um when you're in with your producer hat on um huge I mean George is and I was lucky to meet him a couple of times as well um and he was, but well, he used to have this studio in Oxford's uh, circus called Air. Mm. Um, it was above, it was high up on a, like the top floor overlooking Oxford Circus. It was an extraordinary place. Um, and uh, I was working with um, Aztec Camera at the time. And um, I met, I met George then. That would have been about 1987, maybe 86 oh, around okay. then. But, um, and he was still, it was very charismatic. Um, anyway, I mean, yeah, no, obviously I've studied his production uh, very carefully and the use of orchestration, of course, for me is a huge thing. You know, using in- instruments that, you know, like the solo on For No One, the French horn solo mm. or the piccolo solo in Penny Lane or the uh, the obviously the string octet arrangement on Eleanor Rigby, which has got to be the best arrangement of a pop song ever. I mean, that's the most incredible arrangement. Um, And um, yeah, I mean, it's very inspiring. And and I I see it to me, it's like, that's like the top level Mm. of what you're trying to get to. Um, I'm not, I wouldn't be arrogant enough to say I've ever got to that level, but that's where <laughs> I'm trying to get to and try to get to with, with Robbie records and yeah. various other people's records. I'm always, not that I'm necessarily stylistically wanting to be in that same world, but just the use of color and instrumentation and, and also the daring in his, he was a very bold producer as well. I mm. mean, and I think that, he was very brave, but I thought obviously he was very much pushed by pioneers, which is what they were. They were total pioneers. Yeah. I was thinking with George Martin. I mean, we I, we used to have that record, the All Aboard record. There's a lot of George Martin produced. I don't stuff know that. On, it's the kind of the lots of children's stuff and. Well, he, he right when what what year is this that? This is pre. So it's kind of um, it would have been before the Beatles. When he, oh, right. you know, what, what, the stuff he was producing before then was mm. kind of well. I know the Goons show, but yeah, I, I, yeah. I, and he also produced um, a jazz band, didn't he? What were they called? The uh, Pasadena? No, they were they called? No, they weren't called that. They were well, they, they were, weren't they called the Pasadena Roof Orchestra? Didn't he produce them? Yeah, possibly. Not I sure. think didn't he do some stuff with Humphrey Littleton as well? Humphrey Littleton, oh, yeah. yeah, he did a lot Played of jazz, a lot of Beatles stuff. I might have to quickly um, Google this. But I don't know about All, Ab- All Aboard. That sounds... Is it a good record? I mean, it's a kind of mixed bag. It's uh, right. it's lots of different children's songs. Um, it had, like, the Laughing Policeman on it and things like this. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. that was a huge... That was a huge song yeah. for me growing up. That Ed Stewart used to play it on Radio 1. Every I like, and Right Said Fred by Bernard Cribbins was on it. Another, <laughs> another, another big record. 
uh, goodness gracious me and uh, my boomerang won't come back, all these kinds <laughs> of things. I always thought that uh, George Martin had something to do with those songs, but I might be wrong. Ernie, the did fastest he... milkman in the West by Benny Hill <laughs> as well. Was did, on there. did he produce that? Well, I always assumed he had, but I might be utterly wrong in my <laughs> assumption. <laughs> I bought that record. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Hi, Hi Robin, Robin here. here. Just, Just want, want to reiterate that the album All Aboard does indeed feature uh, a song that was produced by George Martin. Uh, in fact, many, maybe a couple of songs, but definitely Right Said Fred by Bernard Cribbins was produced by George Martin. Just wanted to clear that up. George Martin just seems like yet another insanely serendipitous element of the sort of Beatles concoction that just seems yeah. far too good to be true. <laughs> this is a kind of question we're, we're asking guests, did the Beatles actually exist or are they too good to be true? <laughs> a bit like the moon landing, you mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a kind of sense of, um, yeah, the story is so good that it makes you question reality, you know? I mean, I do think they're like... Their their iconic status now has made them almost supernatural. Mm. Um, I know what you mean, and and there's no band to compare them with, uh, and they're since really. Yeah. Mm. Um, even though obviously various bands have tried to emulate them in, like Oasis, of course. That's the only thing I think about a lot is who is going to be. Will we ever have another band culturally that has that gravitas and changes changes the world to, mm. to that extent? Mm. And um, I'd I'd like there to be another band that does it, but um, hard to imagine now, really. <laughs> but it is part of that kind of post-war culture, and then there's a really lovely bit at the end of the talk you mentioned Oasis at the end of the Supersonic film where Noel Gallagher makes this very sort of elegiac point that you you couldn't really have an event like that now where a band at that point in time, like Oasis in the mid-90s, meant so much to so many people. Because after that, the internet came along and everything became so much more dispersed and things. And So there's a sense yeah. of that with the Beatles as well, is that they were such a unifying band that spoke so much of their time as well. That You know, it's hard yeah. to imagine something I, similar happening now. Well, I, I think, well... I agree, but then I would say, say Beyond, if Beyonce yeah. did a massive gig in this country, it would have a similar. She'd be able to do a gig as big as that. Yeah, mm. um, and yeah. she's like a, I, I would say she's like she's channeling some of the Beatles spirit. I mean, mm. obviously not musically, but um, she's 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 someone who's extremely artistic. Yeah, um, and like, da- and daring. Yeah, mm. like Homecoming was just amazing, wasn't it? That whole Coachella performance. Yeah, was just and incredible. I, I, I always think she's the closest we have to the Beatles. Mm. You know, she's obviously incredibly mainstream. She's, she's the. I guess she, her, and Rihanna are the biggest uh, R and B stars in the world. But um, but she's got this radical element to her that mm. is very Beatles. <laughs> So that was Guy Chambers. Uh, fascinating stuff. Massive thanks for him for taking out the time to do it. It's a really lovely, sort of humble, generous man. Um, and I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it was great. He was so uh, eloquent and 
I loved listening to him talk. You got the sense that he was kind of there were so many amazing stories. <laughs> he was being quite modest about, you know. Yeah, yeah, he's probably yeah, held a yeah. few back because. Uh... Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was great. Very generous of you with his time, and yeah, very humble and just passionate and want, wanted to talk about them. So it's great. So thank you so much for making it this far. You're always our favourite people when you get to this <laughs> stage. Um, next week, we've got another amazing guest. I should probably stop saying we've got amazing guests every week because the inference is that one day I'll be like, today we've got a bit of a duff guest. <laughs> a shit guest. <laughs> Which we're obviously never going to have yeah. shit guests. <laughs> but we do have an amazing guest. Uh, the stand-up comedian, writer and actor, May Martin, who was absolutely fantastic. And that's really interesting. She is a massive Beatles nut um, to the extent that she has a Beatles song tattooed on her. Not an entire song, just the title. But yeah. Just the title, yeah. not the whole lyrics. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we talked to her about her sitcom Feel Good, about her relationship with the Beatles. Uh, yeah, we've, there's loads of stuff. Yeah, we which, which friend would be which Beatle? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so that's something to look forward to. Yeah. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week and continue to sort of send in your correspondence and stuff um, to jack at homespunsounds.com. And, yeah, follow us on Instagram. If you like the show, please do give us a rating. It's really helpful if you're an Apple Podcast listener. And tell your friends. See you next week, Robin. Yeah, see you next week. Your Own Personal Beatles is presented by Jack Pelling and Robin Allender. The podcast artwork is done by Morgan Ritchie. It's produced by me, Jack Pelling, and is a Homespun Sounds production. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.